Vader shuttle has arrived. Vader, this is an unexpected pleasure. We're honored by your presence. Yo, G, I'll be there to see why your homies ain't working their booties off. I assure you, Lord Vader, my men are working as fast as they can. We be seeing if they get this ride going with six foot seven of black staring down. I tell you, the station will be operational as planned. Well, the man don't think so, and he be cruising back here to check out this ride. The Emperor's coming here? Yeah, and he gonna put a cap in your white ass. We shall double our efforts. Damn straight. And remember, this be CNN. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Box. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about solar flares, money for NIH, and prosthetic devices. In addition, Bill Myers will join us to talk about democracy and journalism. Also joining us is Jimmy Lin to talk about new features in the Mac OS X to be released next year. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up, here on Berkeley Grox. Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad, not too bad. I've been having a great time. It's hard work, you know. <laughs> yeah, I heard you were like the hardest working grad student this week. I had uh, two rounds of golf over at uh, Spyglass Hill, which was a lot of hard work for his grad students. Yeah. Three movies. <laughs> uh, almost got arrested. <laughs> oh, by the way, I need to remind me, I need to file a police misconduct suit against the Berkeley... Oh, well, of course, of yes, course. Indeed. Oh, and of course, Burning Man. We also went to the Burning Man. Oh, yeah. Or not the actual Burning Man, but like... The Crucible, which is also very interesting. So, so I did most of that, except the police getting almost <laughs> arrested. But I did get slapped by a girl. So. You did get slapped by a girl. Yeah, for calling her Chewbacca. So I, I think I'm learning things about the real world, finally. I think in general, calling uh, women Chewbacca, not a good idea. No, okay. That's, I'm not sure, but okay. I've heard these things. I'm honing my social skills, so. Right. Yoda, on the other hand, I think might work. Yes. Very cool. So, what's going on in science? Well, speaking of golf and holes and stuff like that, what's the smallest hole you've ever seen with your eyes? The smallest hole I've ever seen with my eyes, needle. Well, it turns out some engineers are making holes on the order of 70 micrometers. Really, I have no sense of scale for what that would be. I don't think I could see it. <laughs> okay. 
So um, they're using this technology to filter beer. Okay. And originally this was developed by Philips of Netherlands uh, in the early 90s when they were trying to create this thing called digital compact cassette as an uh, alternative to CD quality uh, tape. And unfortunately, that never took off. But the technology was developed, and now this company called Fluxion is trying to create this metal membrane with these 70 micron holes as a filter for uh, yeast and other uh, materials that they don't want in your beer. What makes this a better filtering? Don't we already have like microporous filter paper type stuff? Yes, actually, uh, that's been around for a while. But the problem is, when you filter, you have to use considerable pressure up to one atmosphere. Whereas with this metal plate, you can do it with one tenth of an atmosphere. And the other thing is, it doesn't get clogged as badly because the holes are well defined in terms right. of their diameter. Right, and I bet there's less adhesion to uh, metal surfaces than there is to, say, paper. Right. I guess we can look forward to more clear beer coming a long <laughs> way. Well, I like my beer hoppy and, and muddy. <laughs> but the other cool thing about this is it could also replace pasteurization so if they can have a membrane where you can filter the bacteria selectively then they can have clean milk without all that pasteurization. Oh again I like my beer with some bacteria. If you're not getting dysentery when you're drinking beer what's the point? You haven't traveled. Yeah. So this is cool stuff. You could check it out on the July 11th edition of New Scientist. Right, well, I think the, the government has also invented a, a very interesting sort of sieve. Started to filter out the terrorists? <laughs> Some ways, I guess. They're actually filtering out the grant money from biomedical research. That's too bad. Indeed. Shame on you, George Bush. I guess they have other priorities right now, which I'm not sure what they are. But <laughs> It's never clear. Yes. <laughs> Big Brother has it all figured out, I guess. But at the very least, their priority certainly does not lie with funding biomedical research. In fact, the National Institutes of Health received only a $727 million increase this year, which accounts for just a 2.7% raise, which is much less than the annual rate of inflation for biomedical research. So actually, overall, it's a lost leader then. <laughs> yes, it is. And the Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation immunologist Paul Kincaid, in fact, says that he's terrified about the consequences for researchers. He says that they'll prevent them from giving raises to uh, technicians and postdocs. And, of course, ongoing projects will suffer because they can't buy equipment. You know, I think I'm going to get out of the country for my next postdoc. <laughs> Either that or go into the military. That's, <laughs> I think, getting a little more funding. <laughs> yeah. But this is an interesting bill which was just passed, and it was published in the recent edition of Science Now. So if anyone out there is concerned about contacting the government, what should they do? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously you could just email their uh, representative at the House of Representatives. Talk to them about spending priorities. So you think the weather's been hot lately? Actually, it's been quite clement around here. <laughs> Pretty balmy, huh? Yes, indeed. Well, it turns out in outer space it's been really rough. Oh, well, I mean, it's, I imagine it's like close to absolute zero. Well, I'm talking about the solar radiations from the solar storm that happened last year. So apparently there's a lot of high-speed particles surging from the sun, and it's been hitting the planet pretty intensely, traveling at the rate of 5 million miles an hour. Would this account for, I guess, increases in like the aurora up in... Yes, in fact, they were able to see it as far south as Florida. But the great implication is that it seems that the effects of the storm is reaching out to the edges of the solar system as well. And in fact, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 have detected the storm through their radio waves. That's pretty interesting. So is it going to affect their operations, or are they okay? I think at this point it's not going to affect them at all. But at least now we have evidence that it actually goes up to 9 billion miles away. <laughs> well, there's nothing really much to stop them except empty space and right. a few planets here and there. Right. And the other interesting development is that they think these rays may be responsible for why Mars does not have any water right now. What they observed is from this uh, recent blast was that it ripped off part of their atmosphere and oh. it destroyed one of the radiation monitoring equipment that's on the Mars Odyssey. So they, they have a theory how Mars may have lost its atmosphere as well as its water content. 
percent, and why subsequently there's no life because of all these uh, solar storms. But that doesn't explain why Earth would still have uh, an atmosphere. Well, we have the magnetic field to shield uh-huh. us partially. All oh, right, so Mars is kind of lacking that in some ways. Yeah, it has no global right. magnetic field. Right. So uh, I guess that's the weather in space right now. <laughs> and, and the forecast for the next millennia. <laughs> it's going to be rough until next year, actually. Okay, well, so uh, get your rain gear on and watch out for those solar particles. Yeah, anyways, it's uh, another cool article from uh, The New Scientist. So how do you uh, move objects? I use my thoughts. You use the force, don't you? Mm, very <laughs> difficult it is. <laughs> well, in the not-too-distant future, or even the distant future, we may have prosthetic devices which will tap into your thoughts and allow you to move robotic arms to capture oh, various things that you would like to capture. Wow, you mean like girls and stuff like that? <laughs> as long as you don't call them Chewbacca, I think <laughs> <Okay>. you're fine. <laughs> But it turns out that uh, researchers who are trying to develop prosthetic devices that could help individuals who are paralyzed uh-huh. have been trying to read a number of the signals from the different brain areas. Uh-huh. And a group of researchers at the California Institute of Technology, led by Richard Anderson, have been investigating one particular area called the parietal reach region. Mm. And this is apparently a much different area than people have been looking at because it actually involves the planning areas of the brain okay. rather than just the motor areas of the brain. Okay. So it shows that just the process of thinking about and planning the motion they can use those signals to actually execute the movement of a robotic arm. Mm-hmm. So I guess this means there's hope that people who've lost their limbs could get a prosthetic device which can basically function as their old limbs by connecting to the frontal region. So we could all become bionic cyber cops. <laughs> Maybe there, we can uh, have ourselves encased in an exoskeleton and create like some sort of man-machine super weapon. <laughs> could, I could just see it, Frank. <laughs> the Frankatron. <laughs> what would you do with that power? Would you use it for good or for awesome? <laughs> awesome. Of course. <laughs> Maybe insane, too. Okay, that works as well. But if people are interested in this, this is published in the July 9th issue of Science. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science this week. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Bill Moyers joins us to talk about big media in the information age. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Well, joining us today is a very special guest, uh, Mr. Bill Moyers, who will be telling us a little bit about democracy in America. Uh, Mr. Moyers has been the author of several books and producer of many TV shows, including The Power of Myth and Healing and the Mind. Mr. Moyers, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grocks today. My pleasure. You have a uh, new book coming out, uh, Moyers in America, A Journalist's Look at His Time. First of all, could you tell us a little bit about this book and why you chose this particular uh, time to uh, publish it? The book is a series of essays and commentaries that I have done over the years, which New Press wanted to publish because in this political year, I have some things to say about uh, democracy and politics. And the essence of the book is that we are moving toward an oligarchic society where a relatively small handful of rich people decide with their money who will run, who will win, and how will be governed. The defenders of the present system are people who mainly give most of the money to campaigns and politics, and, and they write the rules. I mean, we we are moving to a two-tier society in which this relatively handful of very rich and powerful people have literally bought the government right out from under us. That's the thesis of the of the book. From your years in politics and journalism, what has been the most surprising development in democracy? The biggest uh, change has been the power of big money. Money's always been an issue in American politics. The first great fundraiser of American politics was a man named Mark Hanna who lived in the 1890s. He said there are two important things in politics. The first is money, and I can't remember the second. So money's always been a factor. But since 1979, when the Supreme Court uh, determined that money is also free speech, uh, money has bought more and more of the access to the media and more and more domination over our political discourse. That's been the biggest change. Uh, talking about democracy, you know, one of the foundations of democracy is education. Uh, do you have any comments on uh, what's happening with the American educational system and, and what we need to uh, improve it? The biggest change in education is that it's getting so expensive it's being priced out of the reach of working people and, and lower class, uh, lower uh, middle class Americans. I mean, in, in once upon a time there in California and in Texas, my home state, uh, you know, poor people, poor kids like me could get to college with a minimal tuition and a minimal cost. That's all changing. We're actually creating the two system of education in this country, one system for those who can afford the big tuition and the, and the high cost, and the other for kids who can't, and uh, this has been a serious uh, big change in America. The Internet is a great source of uh, information as well as uh, misinformation, but a lot of people feel it has this great potential to bring back this democracy by lowering the barriers for uh, people to, to get good information. Where do you see that going? I think the Internet is the equivalent of the penny press in America. When when you didn't need a lot of money to, in the early days in the early days of America, you, you could pretty well start your own newspaper if you could afford a little printing press and the ink to publish it. And we had hundreds, thousands of uh, of what were called printers around the country who were really journalists expressing their opinion. It was a great raucous uh, democratic discourse that was going on, and mm -hmm. uh, I think the internet comes close to that today. They, uh, biggest change in American media has been the concentration of ownership in fewer and fewer hands so that a handful of big companies today own most of the broadcasting and television and newspaper outlets in this country. I mean, uh, two-thirds of the newspaper markets in America today are monopolies. If it weren't for the Internet, there'd be no alternative to the public.
power of big media. So I, I consider the Internet to be the public forum for America today. What we have to watch out for is that if we're not careful, the same big companies that control these uh, big media what we have to look out for is that the same big companies that control broadcasting and newspapers are going to want to control the Internet, and that would be a disaster. There have been several documentaries that came out recently, uh, including Michael Moore's film and another film called Corporation, uh, where they discuss big media and how they have power to, uh, to create bias into the news. As a journalist, do you have comments on how the media is producing their news these days? I think the mainstream media... I think that serious news is getting pushed into smaller news holes and far from prime time. press seems more interested in celebrity uh, and sensation than in real news, uh, more interested in speed than accuracy, more interested in opinion than, than reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a major shrinkage of the information that you and I need to act on as citizens. I have a friend, a journalist named Richard Reeves, who was once asked by a student, what's your definition of real news? And he said, real news is the information you and I need to keep our freedoms. And I don't think we're getting enough of that kind of information today from our mass media. You know, I'm out of time now. I apologize for it, but I've, I've got to run. I understand. And I appreciate very much your, your giving me this time. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Cox. All right. And we were just talking to world-renowned journalist Bill Moyers. His new book, Moyers on America, a journalist's look at our times, is now available in bookstores and online. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In just a few moments, Jimmy Lillen joins us to talk about new features in Mac OS X 10.4. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Rocket Rocks, and now it's time for this week's tech update with Jimmy Lin. Jimmy? 
Thanks, Frank. So I thought this time I would talk about some new features that Apple introduced in their new version of uh, Mac OS X, version 10.4, um, also known as Tiger. And Tiger will be released uh, in the first half of next year. And so there are quite a few new features in Tiger, including a new search uh, capability so that allows users to quickly search for words or phrases, not only in uh, normal text files, but also in you know, PDF files and, and so on on their hard drive. So it's a feature that isn't in Mac OS X right now. So how's that different from the Finder they have? Well, Finder is for actually finding a particular file. So uh-huh. if you know that you're looking for a file named you know, Trip Report, then you can start browsing your hard drive for that. But if you're looking for a document that contains the words Trip Report, but you don't remember what the document is uh, called or you don't know where it is, uh, then you can uh, type in Trip Report. Basically, there'll be a little magnifying glass icon in the upper right hand corner you click that you'll be able to type in that into a search box and pretty quickly um, it will start showing a list of files that match your criteria, even as you type. So this is like Google for your desktop. Yeah, you could think of it that way. <laughs> yes, that's right. Because, I mean, the ironic thing right now is it's easier to search the web for something than it is <laughs> to search your hard drive. And so I do that all the time when I look for papers. <laughs> right, right. Like, you probably downloaded the paper at some time, but it's just easier to go onto the web and find it again. Yeah, except this time, like, SEO 1092 whatever PDF. That's so. right. That's oh, that right. one. I I know that one very well. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> um, another feature that Apple introduced is uh, they call it Dashboard. And the idea here is that you press a button and on your keyboard and all of these little uh, mini applications, uh, what Apple is calling widgets, kind of pop up onto your screen. Things like a stock ticker or a calculator and things like that. This feature was pretty controversial when it was demoed because it looked a lot like an existing Mac application called Confabulator. And so when a lot of people saw that, they said, well, this is a Confabulator ripoff. And the uh, creator of Confabulator was not happy when he saw mm-hmm. that. And uh, he and he said, well, you know, Apple should have paid us or should have done something, you know, to acknowledge that, that we came up with this. But interestingly enough, there are uh, a few people who rushed to Apple's defense and um, and they pointed out a few things. One is that these this idea of widgets is not not really new. In mm-hmm. fact, when Apple came out with a Macintosh back in 1984, it came with a few of these small miniature applications, which they call desk accessories, which came with a calculator and a little 15 puzzle uh-huh. and so on. And so Confabulator can't say that they came up with the idea of widgets right. in the first place. And another thing is that to create one of these widgets in Confabulator versus uh, Dashboard is actually very different. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah. So the technical design of Confabulator was such that they were trying to be, they were looking towards possibly implementing this on other operating systems. Isn't it based on JavaScript or something like that? Confabulator has JavaScript, it's, but it's main. the way you mainly describe these widgets is in some type of XML-based language. Oh, I see. Whereas um, Apple's uh, dashboard, the widgets are actually defined in HTML, cascading style sheets, and JavaScript. In other words, your standard web technologies. Oh, okay. So, you know, if you can write a web page, it's not that much of a stretch. Mm-hmm to be able to write a dashboard widget. And that makes
makes it very different from Confabulator. Right. The way you create these widgets. Another thing that uh, people pointed out is that the way Apple it implemented it, basically the implementation is much more efficient. Mm-hmm. And so it pop, you know, it pops up faster. It takes up less memory. And Didn't Windows have something similar before, like Active Desktop? Or yeah, whatever so, it was called. Yeah. So interestingly enough, back in around 1997, when Microsoft introduced Internet Explorer 4.0, one of the things that they touted was the integration of Internet Explorer with Windows, which later got them in trouble with the Department of Justice. But <laughs> technically speaking, one of the things they did is yeah, they created this concept called Active Desktop that allowed um, people to create these basically miniature pages that you could just stick on top of your desktop. So your desktop mm-hmm. wouldn't just contain an image anymore. You could actually embed HTML snippets okay. and stuff like that on your desktop. But um, for some reason, it never took off, mm-hmm. at least the active desktop part. Probably the only legacy these days of active desktop is that you can display GIFs and JPEGs directly mm-hmm. on your desktop instead of Windows bitmap files. But um, I believe the functionality is still there. It's just not talked about anymore. And then finally, there's one feature that I find particularly interesting that um, hasn't been talked about as much, um, but it's called Automator. And what Automator does is it allows people who don't have much programming experience to start to allow them to put together some simple scripts. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you wanted to create a script that says, well, every day, check my address book. If it is someone's birthday today, then send an email Mm -hmm. to that person (laughs) wishing them a happy birthday, right? So, So you can be the most socially apt person, you know, like you are on top of things, right? Wow, so the uh, next version of OS X will help me uh, compensate for my lack of social skills. That's then. right, that's right. In the, in the you know, from calling women Wookiees. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, or, you know, other things such as um, after I download my pictures from my, you know, digital camera, rename all the files to something and stick them into this folder. And so what uh, Automator comes with, more than a hundred predefined actions, and each of these oh. actions contain specific things like copy this file to a folder or email something or so on. Mm -hmm. And what you do is basically you you put them together in almost in what they call a workflow. So, you know, you start off with a file or a group of files and and that gets put into an action and the action acts upon these objects and then and then those objects flow to the next action in your workflow and so on and so on. Okay. And so now you can kind of snap these things together. Right. And if any of your listeners out there is familiar with Unix or Linux, you know, at the command line, you can often take these small little scripts and, um, and, and take some text and run them through a whole bunch of these little scripts and connect them with pipes. Right. This is the mm. same type of idea. Okay. But now exposed in a way that uh, non-techie can mm. understand. And it's also graphical. Yeah, it's more graphical. You know, it allows oh. you to lay out stuff. Like, for example, if one action exposed images specifically, but something outputs just a general file, then Automator will let you know that these two things may not be compatible and flag it with, you know, an error message beforehand. Cool. And so, you know, there's some limitations to this, um, uh, to Automator. To make it easier to use, um, what they have right now is they don't allow conditionals. So they don't allow you to say, well, if 
this email comes from so and so or something, then do mm-hmm. this. You know, there you can't branch depending right. on particular properties of the files, and so you know that makes it easier to lay out the workflow. But obviously, you don't have as much power. macOS 10 comes with a scripting language called AppleScript. It's been there for years now, and so that you know that is still available for those who want to progress from Automator. Very cool. Okay, well, cool stuff coming along the way next year, huh? That's right. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. And now it's the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. Okay, and now here's the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. Why do the clock go clockwise? Well, it turns out uh, in the original sundial, uh, the direction of the shadow go in uh, clockwise, and that is how come the clock now also go clockwise. Yee-haw! All right, it's Cowboy Bob, and you know what? Down there in the deep south and all over the Midwest and all over the West and all over this great land of ours, we like to make turf. Oh, how is what this country was built upon? Turf! But nowadays they got that artificial turf, and they didn't have it back in the Pilgrim days, I'll tell you what. So what do they make that stuff out of? Sure ain't no stuff that I know of. Well, if you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but hey, golly, you know what? The grass just might be greener on the other side. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Link. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon, and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.